Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. How you doing? This is episode 129 with the delightful Lauren Miller-Salento. She's ace and I will tell you more about her in a moment. Uh, this episode is brought to you by the wonderful listeners who came forward and pledged their hard-earned money at the Patreon page of this show, patreon.com slash Osher. Patreon is a way for you to uh, pledge money to the show if you think it's worth it, if you think it's worth Throwing a few bucks towards to help me produce the show, you can do that. If you can't afford to do it, please don't do it. But if you can, uh, I would be incredibly grateful. The money helps me uh, afford an audio producer, Andy, who helps me put the show out each and every week. And um, I'm hopefully going to be able to soon, uh, there'll be enough uh, to afford a show producer who can help me with coordinating guests and, and, and things like that. So... Every dollar that you pledge is going straight into the show and it's uh, a way for you to show that you like the show. Does that make sense? If you can't afford anything, please don't. But if you can, for as little as $5 a month, uh, you can get access to exclusive episodes and as a few other rewards there as well. Patreon.com slash Osher. I'm doing a gig. I don't ever do live gig plugs, but look, here I am. Um, if you want to come see me doing something fun as a part of the Sydney Comedy Festival, I've been invited. I'm very grateful to have been invited along to Story Club at the Sydney Town Hall, the big room. So we need to sell a lot of tickets. Um, so I'll be, I'll be telling a story alongside some other fantastically talented story st- storytellers. For some reason, they got me involved, uh, but I am kind of shitting myself. It's on Saturday the 23rd. Uh, it's in the big room. I'm sure there's tickets on sale at the Ticket Sydney Comedy Festival website. I have no idea what story I'm going to tell. Shit. <laughs> Audrey's given me a couple of thoughts. Uh, I don't quite know what I'm going to do, but um, yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's going to be okay. Apologize for that. 
Uh, I just got home. It's late on Sunday night and Frank's uh, losing his mind um, that I'm home. Frank's the dog who lives here, by the way. So, yeah, I'm shitting myself a bit about this about this gig. But if you do buy tickets, let me know. I'll look out for you. I'll give you a wave. Uh, There's a lot to sell. So, yeah, we'll see how we go. Um, I hope your week's okay. I've been dealing with some heavy shit this week, my friends. I can't really tell you what it's about because it involves more people than me. So, it's not just my story to tell, but I will say this. Um, how can I put this obtusely? How you approach illness and you all want to get better is, in my opinion, from what I've observed over the last few days, as important or even more important than the medical treatment that you may be getting. It's never been more evident to me. I'm going through a bit of roughness at the moment, uh, but no, I'm watching someone go through a bit of roughness at the moment, um, someone who's around my age. And um, holding the idea of hope in your condition and your life improving and your life getting better is is imperative. Um, it's hard, I know, but believing that a better day will come is an incredibly powerful tool. You have to work for it, but it is out there because I've seen uh, firsthand both sides of that coin where it's like, oh, fuck it, I don't care anymore versus... I don't know. This is so going to get better. I've just got a few more months of this and then I've got that and everything's going to be rad. Uh, so I think that's what I'd learned, what I learned this week. I have been trying to get more sleep this week. I got, oh man, Friday night, went up to Brisbane uh, to go see some family and um, oh, I got 10 hours. It was extraordinary. <laughs> it was extraordinary. It was so good. Um, I had a rad time. Miss Gigi heaps. Gigi's been out at uh, her dad's all week, which is super cool. She's been doing cool shit down on the farm. Um, but I missed her heaps, so I got to hang out with her and have inflatable pool toy wars with her all day, which was pretty pretty glorious. If you want to send me an email, send Osher email at gmail.com. Um, I read every email. I don't write back to everyone, but I read every one. I, I write back to pretty much all of them. You can also find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash Osher Ginsburg Live, I think it is. I don't know, I set it up a long time ago. Let me tell you about my guest today. Uh, my guest today is a delightful human being. I do like her very much. Lauren Miller-Salento. Lauren is the CEO of uh, HMMG, the Harry M. Miller Group, I think that's what the acronym's for. I really should have researched that. She's one of the most significant talent management agencies in Australia. Um, and what she doesn't know about show business isn't worth knowing, really. She's the daughter of one of the greatest producers and talent managers that our country's ever seen. Uh, Harry and Miller produced some of the biggest shows that ever came to Australia. And as you'll hear, pretty much started an entire industry in uh, live theatre production. And Lauren learned the business in the center of some of the biggest media deals ever done in Australia. Now she has the reins. Uh, she's quite a bit younger than me and she's the head of this company. It's very exciting. She's a, a smart, a funny, a powerful woman. She's a wonderful mother to a wonderful son and she's the CEO of a, a brilliant forward-thinking company. She's got a lot of wisdom in this one. Uh, even if you're not in show business, I hope you really enjoy this because she's got some fun stories, but uh, she also has some good 
uh, pretty pretty good wisdom that I'm uh, I'm very happy that we got to because uh, she's a wise human being, and I do dig her a lot. So uh, enjoy this. Lauren came over to my place last week and hung with Frank. I'm sure you'll get a kick out of it. This is Lauren Miller Salento. How are you, Lauren? I'm very well, thank you. And you? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. You, you, as someone who is very familiar with the hours of the breakfast radio announcer, having yeah. created more than one breakfast radio star of this country, um, you would no doubt know the secrets of the afternoon nap. <laughs> well, I'm glad that I've arrived just post-afternoon nap. You look fresh. Well, pages of notes. Yeah, well. You're ready to roll. A little cup of tea. A little bit of research. Yeah, like that. so it's so good to see you again. It's so good to see you. Thank you. Well, I'm I'm up. Uh, I've been up past for batch purposes. We're doing a lot of um, a lot of dates up in the Hawkesbury region. Oh right, nice. And so whenever okay. I'm up there, I'm like, oh, oh, I remember you. It's a beautiful spot. It is. A, it is a beautiful spot. And Mum and my stepfather Bob, obviously, they they're on the on the horse farm there, Muskoka, and now they live 2Ks up the river. Is it still there? Still attached, uh, still attached to the business of the farm and now they live in the famous log cabin house. What's so famous about it? Um, Rene, it was Rene Rifkin's house on the river. Oh, good Lord. And they bought that many years ago. There's not enough sage in the world. Um, <laughs> they bought it many years ago. As you know, my stepfather is Canadian. So um, an orange-coloured Canadian log cabin house is sort of a dream come true. So Bob, being the incredible builder, did a Grand Designs building project on it and it is truly the most spectacular house I've ever seen. Wow. Um, and was on the Hawkesbury. So just up another bend of the was river. Was it at? That house that there was the log cabins of Canada book? Um, Totally. There would have been the Muskoka region book. Yeah. um, All of those things. But it it is truly beautiful and they continued the log cabin um, motif. Got the same builder that um, Renade used. Wow. And got her back to build. I mean, it's sort of real artistry. And then my mother and stepsister Lisa, who's a designer, um, did the interiors together. So it's a, it's such a beautiful part of the world, and and the river rats and the whatnot all come together at the under the tree at Spencer and have a beer on a Friday afternoon. Um, <laughs> well, I do. You were so very gracious, and you invited me and uh, my ex-wife up there for a weekend, and mm. uh, we arrived by seaplane. I felt ever so mm-hmm. fancy. I felt ever so fancy, but I did sit there across that weekend and. Uh, your stepfather, Bob, and your mum, Wendy, are both extraordinarily successful human beings. And I remember just watching them and just Bob just casually, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I brought KFC to Australia, yeah. And Sizzler. <laughs> and Lone Star. And Lone Star. Steakhouse, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, you know, just, just, it was just, he was just dropping business knowledge, like dropping bombs mm. of gold and, and stuff he taught me that weekend, I still use today. I can't even imagine what it's like to have not one extraordinarily, well, well not two extraordinarily powerful business people in your life with those two, but also with your dad mm. growing up like that. It would have, we'll get to it. <laughs> we'll get to it. We'll where get you, to it. Right at you, the top of the notes. Where, on did, you, where did you grow up? 
Don't be afraid of these. I'll put these away. I oh, know I love the notes. No, no, I love notes. You know I love mean? notes. It's a six well, piece, again, Lauren. because I've known you for you know, I've known you for a long time and so I but I just love I love that we're actually here in this it's environment the, having this conversation. It's the six P's. Prior preparation prevents piss poor performance. Yeah, nice. You know, that's why I didn't give it to Bob, but that's my... That's, <laughs> yeah, nice. It's the only one I got. Uh, so I was... Where'd you grow um, up? Here in Sydney? Grew up in Sydney, born in the Crown Street Hospital, which no longer exists. And the story of my birth um, is... Uh, it, it, well, is a funny one because... Um, my father at the time was organising the head of the committee organising the Queen's Silver Jubilee and was hosting Prince Charles in Australia at that time. And um, Mum knew that she, I would, she would be having her, her second caesarean and she literally, uh, in the week or whatever period that Prince Charles was here, he, I believe he stayed at their house. They had private dinners at their house. She just popped off and had a caesarean and then I think within 24 hours was the, the primary event at the house and um, she was there front and centre with my father to host Prince Charles and then went back to hospital that night. So I'm from pretty strong female stock, you might say. Um, born, at the, uh, born at the Crown Street Hospital, which, as I said, doesn't, no longer exists. Um, and apparently she had the same anaesthetist that I had when I gave birth 35 years later. Well, There you go. But raised in Sydney, but um, mum and dad already owned the property at Dunmore, which was north of Tamworth, mm-hmm. at a place called Manila, outside of Manila. Right. Manila with two L's. <laughs> the other one. And so for a period of time, sort of that infant primary school time, we would come and go. So I spent all of third grade at, at the you know, Catholic convent school in Manila, but then I would have spent most of fourth grade back at Dogway Public in Sydney. So we really moved around a bit. I don't really remember to what degree. But at the time, I mean, Dad was... He, he was um, obviously busy rebuilding his business at that time after the, um, after the collapse of CompuTicket and everything that came with that. Um, and my mother was pioneering um, um, AI you know, artificial insemination in cattle at the property um, and also was sort of beginning to work at the Rand, which was the Randwick Equine Centre, which was sort of the, the premier um, Randwick vet, um, vet practice and surgery, um, of which she was a stable vet and specialist anaesthetist. So kind of pretty, pretty busy, but this, again, um, an amazing early country upbringing. And yeah. honestly, I mean, that's obviously why I'm so down to work. <laughs> How early, it's really though, helped. how early did you realise, I think it's, no matter what your upbringing, mm. no matter what class of society you'll get brought up in, there is, I believe, there must be a point when you realise that not everybody's like your parents and your parents aren't like everybody. Mm. I certainly remember that. I certainly mm. remember noticing that other parents, other people's parents didn't take them to the, the you know, chamber music concerts every Thursday. Yeah. You know, other people's parents didn't take them to art galleries and explain why Chagall and Miro were different and mm. da da da. But I thought everybody did, you know. Mm. Um, how old were you when you realised that your dad and mum were kind of a little bit different from everybody else's dad and mum? Well, it, I find, I think it's so hard to say, like, because I don't think I, put it this way, I don't think I had an understanding or or really a respect for what dad did or had done until I started working for him, which would be a lot longer, the down the, further down the track. 
Um, but also it's not as if we were um, going skiing in Aspen or doing any of that stuff. To be honest, when we were all a family, I think we went to Hamilton Island in 1984 and that's because Dad probably got it for free. I mean, like, <laughs> we, we didn't... We, we had this amazing property and a life and yet we might have caught small planes to Sydney and it had an airstrip and things like that. But... Um, you know, we were farm kids. Yeah. And so when I got to Askham, like at fifth grade in 1988, I just thought they were so bizarre. I was like, they don't even know what, like how wheat grows. They don't even, they don't know this farm stuff. And that was the moment of, wow, these stuck up city girls are really different to me. And then that was probably the moment of, oh, not everybody's had, the farm girl right. upbringing that we had. And then sort of later on when we'd start doing the odd sort of cool thing, you know, like I saw the concert version of Jesus Christ Superstar 30 times in 1992. Not everybody got to do that, mm. you know. So that was a moment where I think when you get your first AAA lanyard, which you'd respect, um, is kind of a big moment. And um, I, th I suppose it was around then and I would have only been... I don't know, 13, 14, old enough to think that John Stevens was the hottest thing since well, sliced was. bread. He really I mean, was. literally was. He was a great Judas Iscariot. <sighs> <laughs> so when you were a kid, though, it was no like, oh, kids, this is, uh, this is John uh, Farnham uh, for dinner. There was none of that sort of stuff when the people would come over? Um... You know, I, I don't know. Look, I had lots of friends. Maybe I never had them over. I, I just, I, I don't remember. I think I did take people to the rehearsals no, I of mean, Superstar. like when you were a kid, did, they, did some of the people, some of the acts your father was touring, did they ever come over for Oh, yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, yeah, oh, no. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I mean, Maggie Tabra is my godmother and Graham Kennedy is my, was my godfather. <laughs> you know, and that. And, and so people over the years are like, that's the most exceptional thing ever. But, I mean, you know, Harry and Graham fell out many moons ago, but Maggie I probably speak to about every 10 days, you know, because she was just, we are just family. And that's, and it's always, that's the way it's always been. So I'm not trying to pretend that I'm not, I wasn't affected by it or whatnot, but it, when it is your norm, you just don't think that that's, it's anything else than yeah. anything other than normal. But there are incredible people who would have visited Dunmore and, um, you know, people that... And my mother talks about, um, you know, dinners with um, inc the most incredible people, um, uh, authors and amazing artists and... Um, various different people. I remember meeting Grace Jones at the factory and she had a little boy from memory and he was very, very shy. Um, so, but um, I don't know. I mean, children are so caught up in their own stuff. I mean, these days even more so. I mean, we were just kind of doing doing our own thing. Yeah. But we had that, I mean, they had wonderful life and social life. They had amazing, you know, amazing, amazing friends and um, and at you know wild dinner parties and whatnot, where we'd be staying over at a friend's house, um, and they all had kids, and the highlight was everybody got to eat McDonald's, and it was like the biggest thing. And you know they they were having wild wild dinner parties in the other in the other room, but we were just 
kids doing our thing. It just And there were, fam- you know, a lot of famous faces around those tables. There was one group of friends in particular that held a lot of the dinner parties who shall remain nameless. But they would have... <laughs> yeah, I've been pushing you. Wild. I've pushed you three times for names and you they won't drop any, which I is what I love. Out, I, can't, I can't do too many names. But come on, it was a, it was a 70s, I'm sure. But know. it was... what? No, no, this is 80s. 80s. Well and truly 80s. Um, but uh, I, I don't... I think that... Um, the other names or occasions will occur to me as we go, as we oh. roll through. Oh, there's a low-flying helicopter. Yeah, the Navy come through nice. quite low. They um, tend to have a look at the young ladies on the beach. Nice. It's a topless beach here at Bondi, especially down the south end. Of course. Where those from the Nordic regions go, Woo, sun! Yeah. And then just get the yeah. gear off. Nice. So often what happens is the helicopters do that. They come very, very low and they go, oh, and they come around again. Yeah, nice. <laughs> for, a, yeah, awesome. for, a second, for a second quick look. Roll out the ladder from the exit, yeah, the emergency them, door. That's them doing a turn. Yeah. <laughs> and they're going to come around. Jesus. Uh, so, you know, because I'm, I'm only just um, kind of coming to this now. Uh, and my dad is, um, he's retiring at the end of this month and mm-hmm. uh, he's starting to get a bit weaker and I'm starting to... You know, I had I had to go see someone because suddenly I'm you know I'm feeling my will kind of crumble a bit, and they had to sit down and explain to me the really you know the bonding relationship between you and your father and yeah. all this kind of stuff, and it was really kind of starting to, to blow me away. But to to have uh, you know such a strong personality as your father figure mm. in your life, how long was he uh, you know around before your folks uh, split up? Um. <laughs> I was going to say around might be, you know, it, around is an interesting um, definition, you know, he's busy, you know, busy as, and yeah. we were all doing our thing, you know, and he doesn't pretend that he was a particularly around father, but they were together, they were married for 15 years. So I think they separated in about 1987, maybe mm-hmm. fourth grade, right? about fourth grade. Um, and then we, and the farm was sold. Yeah. Year after, so that's kind of when you feel like you're, you know, the little bit of world world collapsing yeah. there. But you know, and and uh, Dad was great fun. Keep in mind, I'm the youngest of five children, mm. and there's always been a friendly a friendly saying in our family that he only ever comes good once you're an adult. <laughs> so he can sit down and have a chat with you because he was, you know, he was really tough. You know, your, your conversation about your report card was unnecessarily harsh because he might not have seen, might not have been, been yeah. there or sat down to do the maths homework or whatnot, but he was off, you know, he was doing something that was making Australia a culturally relevant hub. <laughs> yes. And so that's okay. Yeah. And also, you know, I did have a full-time, we had a full-time working mother and incredible grandparents yeah. and, you know, obviously we've got a full older sister and and we, um, you know, the, and just sort of present strong women as well. Yeah. You, you, that's, that's a... That's a big call that a lot of people may not, may not realise, but you think, you feel that that's the legacy that, that Harry has for this country? Oh, absolutely. And I, I've never been reminded of it more. I went to um, the wonderful John English's service, public memorial, last week on Monday. And it was, 
Um, it's it's hard when you're describing a memorial service as spectacular, most beautifully produced thing, but it really was. And, you know, when I see the vision of John English singing Heaven on Their Minds from Superstar in the early 70s, I mean, not only is he incredible, um, he was so amazing in that role, but, you know, all of the speakers there were saying this is where it started. We're at the Capitol Theatre. This was Harry's, you know, Harry's vision. That show toured for five years. That employed people around this country and in New Zealand for five years, you know, and then he'd later on go and do those, um, you know, you know, do it all again with various different productions as well. But I think that that up and go to bring, to make Australia a destination for the world, some of the world's greatest um, artists, whether it was Rubenstein or Louis Armstrong or, mm. you know, Shirley Bassey. I mean, he, he did, he put Australia on the map. You know, the, the Stones flew coach to Australia. Get out of here. They did. There's a photo in our... We have sort of like a... Our boardroom is like the Harry tribute room, which is a wall of cartoons of him, which he's always had, which are brilliant. Um, all of the newspaper cartoons he sort of collect... He collected over the years and had them framed. They're magic. And then some of the amazing show posters, one with Louis Armstrong, which he signed, and then the photos from the Stones press conference. Um, the With Harry in the background. <clears throat> Now you're going to quiz me on the year. I probably should have bought his book with me. Um, <laughs> but it was White City, but, right? Yeah, it was Sydney yeah. Stadium. Yeah. Um, but I'll, I'll fact check that for you. Um, and then, you know, and then as the years went on, moving into moving into talent, moving into television. Um, but it was um, the producing the. Mm theatrical world was really his passion. Yeah. The talent came along the way and incredible projects and relationships and, and whatnot, an incredible legacy and talent, but, you know, he made his money being a theatrical producer. Yeah. Um, and really combined some of the greatest talents. And it's that career starter too, mm. you know, the careers of incredible um, creatives like Brian Thompson, a set designer, you know, composers, um, costume designers, you know, they're all sort of getting their start yeah. as young people on productions like Hair and Jesus Christ I, I just think about that a lot, about um, productions of that size that go for that long and they, they have such a long tail because they create an industry and a learning ladder, I guess, or a, a, a culture of learning mm. and apprenticeship that feeds itself. Yeah. Um, we were just watching the other night the Quentin Tarantino film Hateful Eight. It's not great, unfortunately. Uh, but Zoe Bell has been on this show. Um, yep. Zoe Bell was one of the stunts, uh, stunties on Xena Warrior Princess. Yeah. Shot 185 episodes in yep. New Zealand. And that stunt crew is still working. Yeah. Still working around the world today. Absolutely. But also... Um uh, and then his legacy is in people that the people that worked for him too. So one of the greatest, I think, people to come out of our company uh, under when Dad owned it was I was a junior at the same time with a guy called Michael Castle, who um, always had ambitions to be a theatrical producer. And the reason why how he came to work for Harry is we were we represented Alan Jones at the time, and Michael was producing um, the uh, you know Carols by Candlelight in Kiama, which is where he lived, and he was like fifteen or sixteen or less, and. Um, 
the highlight of the carols in Kayama was Alan Jones arriving on stage in the back of a ute dressed as Santa. Or the, it was a big finale. And yeah. so, and he, you know, he'd said to Alan, I want to be a theatrical producer. And he said, well, you can, I'll introduce you to Harry. <laughs> and so he came, um, he came to the company and we were about the same age and we both sort of studied part-time, we sort of job shared for a while, um, studied part-time doing business marketing or whatever at a business college. Um, and he would then um, he would then go on to work for Disney and then for another big company called Global Creatures. And last year I sat um, in the in the Capitol Theatre as he was their local producer for Les Mis for Cameron McIntosh, <laughs> crying with pride, you yeah. know, because he and he, and he. You know, he adored Harry, still does. And, you know, he really followed through, but he, you know, he was given incredible exposure and, and access to Harry's brain as a producer. And to be honest, that's what, you know, it was his, Harry's absolute core passion. And um, to see, um, to see uh, Michael go on to have his own, um, be, you know, be a producer well and truly in it his own right. It was an extraordinary right. production. An extraordinary production. Simon came on the show, his. So brilliant. Never had a just, singing lesson. There you go. <laughs> um, but it, but yeah. you know, incredible. So I think about you know, as he changed what he did for Australian um, arts and culture. You got to remember, he created the subscription programs at the for the ballet and the opera. He started the first Friends of the Art Gallery of New South Wales to get some advocacy and patronage in. You know, these are a lot of these things we sort of take. Um, take for granted. He was on the board of Qantas and various things. They might have been a bit straight for him at the time, but <laughs> one of the great cartoons in the office is a dancer and semi-nude dancing on the boardroom table, the Qantas boardroom table, saying the new costumes are straight from the production of hair. <laughs> <laughs> the new uh, uh, flight, um, attendant, flight attendant uniforms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and there's great deals and talent and ups and downs and and all of those things, and I and I suppose it wasn't, you know, it wasn't till I sort of started working there that I, you know, got a bit of an appreciation, and that's sort of the next steep learning curve yeah. happened. You mentioned just to go back a bit. You mentioned that you went to a school in Sydney called Ascom. I did. Now I, I've met a few people on this show, but who've come to that school. But can you help me understand and the people listening a little more about what kind of school that is? Ascom is a private school for girls. Um, from kindergarten to year 12 and when you hit year 12, uh, when you hit year um, 7, first form, whatever you want to call it. Start of high school. Start of high school. You're introduced to, um, I I don't even know what what you describe it as. It is a learning, an education system um, or an education model um, which has come from another, which um, came from the US called the Dalton Plan, the Dalton System. And it's the way, um, it, it, it's a way of, it teaches you how to study. It teaches you how to learn, I mean, Dalton Plan. And it structures each term into um, two months, four weeks each term. And you have assignments each week. And at the end of week four, you have a test. And um, But you are taught how to study at Ascom. And I think a lot of 
former Ascom girls will tell you, if they loved it or they hated it, they learnt how to study. They learnt how to create a map summary. Um, they learnt how to be responsibility for their responsible for their work and really to time, you know, manage their time. Um, I am not proclaiming to have been the greatest attendee of that school, <laughs> but I did. Um, but I did love it, and um, and I did go into boarding school in year ten there too. So I did the last three years in boarding school, which set me up for life in terms of wonderful friends and experiences, and um, and I'm grateful for my you know for my time there. I did go to my twenty year reunion recently, and we did a bit of a tour. And and a, sci a science teacher who came to ask him when I was in year 10 is now the headmaster, which is a wonderful thing because he's a, he's a terrific bloke called um, Andrew Powell. And he came and did a bit of the tour with us, which was wonderful. And um, it was so nice to sort of connect with him too. But particularly when you've been a boarder and you've lived there, you're like, I cannot believe I used to try and I used to smoke out that window. What was I thinking? <laughs> Let alone smoking three cigarettes in a row out that window. <laughs> Um, but what does um, it teach you about what does it teach you about being a young woman in a patriarchal society? Because all the women I've met out of Ascom are very different um, to the women that I have not gone to that school. Hysterical. Um, look, it has it. It certainly has produced some incredible, incredibly strong female leaders. There's no doubt about that. Does it give you a real, uh, you know, I think it would have evolved by now, but um, there was a little, there was still a little bit at the time, I think, of, you know, marry a grammar boy. They're not as cute as the Cranbrook boys, but they'll be better longer term. You know, there was still a bit of that good girls go, good Ascom girls go to university, good Ascom girls marry well, good Ascom girls do X, Y, and Z, and I didn't. I didn't fit that, and I didn't. I, and I. And sometimes I think that that one size fits all. It doesn't. It doesn't work. A lot of those good Ascom girls that went on to Sydney University, um, a large population of them had dropped out after the first year or so. Right. Because they're just sick of, you know, did well in their HSC, but sick of studying, sick yeah. of being students. And I wish that somebody had tapped me on the shoulder back then and said, go overseas, yeah. go now, yeah. don't go to university, go now. Um, because I had an amazing time, amazing experience at university, but it didn't, it didn't involve a huge amount of sitting in the economics tute, um, <laughs> ski trips and boys' colleges and it was epic. But... Um, but I should have gone overseas because, well, then what happens? I, just, I leave university, I go and work for my father. 20 years later, I still haven't done that big trip overseas. Right. And that's, that's a huge, that's a regret I have. And, and, I, and I think if someone had, if I'd had a bit of an individualised approach exiting Askham from the school, then I would have explored my options a bit more. Or they would have said, you know what, you're a bit of a lazy student. You should not go to university. Why don't you go and work overseas for a year? Um, and I wish I'd had that advice. And it was still all my, you know, we we're all making our own decisions basically about what courses we want to do. Unless you had to be a doctor or had to be a lawyer. 
um, or you just would, you know, I followed the flock a little bit too. And um, again, just probably because I was a bit lazy. Um, couldn't have but been I lazy. do regret that. I was a you, bit lazy. I was could, motivated by a lot of things. You but I been. wasn't that motivated by study. <laughs> but then when I ended up at, I went to Maclay College and did business um, marketing, I loved it, aced it, because I could immediately, I could walk out of Maclay College, be back at my desk within 15 minutes and apply everything I'd done that morning in direct marketing. So that's what, that's the environment that I needed. And I think that it's important to look at what else is out there. Yeah. But I was a worker. I wanted to be a worker. I wanted to work. That's I wanted that, independence. I wanted my own money. Well, th- thanks, for, thanks for explaining that. Um, th- but there, there is definitely something about um, whatever happened at that school that does empower the young women that go there, um, kind of puts them out the other side, certainly with a sense of that I've, you know, now that I've got a 12-year-old girl in my life yeah. and I see the world that she's grown up to, pardon me, I think I'm smuggling a house brick in my right eye, um, when I see the world that she's growing up into, you know, and I'm trying to look at it from her perspective and, mm. you know, I've, it's never been more clear to me you can't be what you can't see mm. and when I see what she can see and the things that she looks at and the successful women that she idolises, mm. um, I'm just all, all I want to do is just tell her you you can you really can be anything you want and don't let people yeah. tell you that it's just holding a detox tea and an Instagram photo. You no, know, that's, that's right. That's, but <laughs> but keep in mind that my but I was told that by a very strong grandmother, a very strong mother. Yeah. The women that I met, people you know, people like the Maggies and whatnot. They were my yeah, that's right. They were my role models, yeah. and then my peers at school. Uh, you know, did I get that from uh, you, you? You exit having a level of confidence being an Ascom girl. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. So do you are a bit take no prisoners, but do I hold them responsible for where I am now? Not in the not not in the slightest. I hold, you know, All I hold ev- everybody life. else. Yeah. Everybody else is sort of responsible. You know, and um, and obviously my own siblings too. Yeah. You know, so it's um, and you can. You know, I, I, I think that was the thing. I wasn't, I don't feel like I was helped in any direction. It was a bit left up for me and I actually wanted direction. I didn't know what, Yeah. I just didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know the questions to ask. No. I, I didn't, you know, that, that's the other thing. So I didn't know what I didn't know. That was, yeah. that was basically it. Yeah. It's like, well, I'm, I'm finished school now. I'm, I think 16 days and I can drink uh, Well, so legally. you end up copying the path. You kind of end up mimicking the path of someone someone else yeah. a lot of the time. Well, Would, what's what's everybody else doing? Oh, well, that looks cool. Maybe I'll give that drinking, a go. Drinking lots of beer on the weekends and well, playing a guitar to Metallica songs. That was my... Well, <laughs> which is a very, very worthy occupation <laughs> and hobby. There's no doubt In about 1992, that. In 1992, I don't know. There's no full, doubt about that. It was my full-time job. Uh, so you started work at university. You were kind of working in and out. Um, did you, did you, you went to Sydney Uni or something? I went to Sydney straight from school. So I was 18 at Sydney Uni mm. and I worked, um, I just had a couple of part-time jobs. Um, I... Um, got through the five interview process to work at Planet Hollywood. That was officially my first job. I was a busser. So all of my network of content, contacts and whatnot landed me um, and my life 
life goals and experience landed me as a busser in Planet Hollywood. And that's picking up the Which dirty was literally from the walking tables. to and from the garbage bin. And I'd walk about 10Ks a night. I was pretty fit in those days. Five interviews. So there were five rounds of interviews. And the very the hysterical thing was that when you get it, you know, coming back to, you know, surely you knew you had a bit of a different life than other people, the references on my application <laughs> for Planet Hollywood were... Um, Queens of Industry, Dita <laughs> Colvin, who I'd done work experience for in um, in 2010, Paddy Moston, who was, you know, always sort of touted by the papers as Elton John's best friend, Queen of Entertainment Publicity. Um, I think oh, I had someone at the office at the time. It was sort of ridiculous. So by the time I'm sitting in front of the managing director of Australia, who just laughed when he read it, he was Australian, he just laughed. And then they basically say, here's the job that you've got. And it was kind of that US wage thing. So I, I think I was only making, I was making, I think, under $6 an hour. And um, you, so I, it was this terribly unsustainable lifestyle of uni all day, work at Planet Hollywood from five, drink till three at that hideous <laughs> hotel that was next to it. I don't remember the name of it, it was so dingy. And then go home, pretend to sleep and then try and deliver for uni the next day. So, I mean, I didn't really, I wasn't really setting myself up for success. Which went first? Um, the, the Planet Hollywood went first. Yeah. We, uh, yeah, I just couldn't. I saved, um, I saved $1,500 to go on the mid-year uni ski trip, which was I, the huge, um, and that first sense of you make your own, you work your tail off, you make your own money, you can go, you know, go and do the ski holiday and then come back and do it all again. Yeah. Um, and just had the greatest time ever. Yeah. Um, and but when I came back, I started working in a pub, I think. And then I would have done another year of. I did another year of uni. Tried to salvage it. Tried to find subjects that I wanted to get into. You Psychology. Dropped out? Yeah, I dropped out at the end of. Was maybe it, it was even halfway halfway through. No. Well, as soon as I said to my father, um, "Listen, I'm wasting your money at university," he said, "Well, we've got a." I said, I just can't, I can't commit to it. I, ju I just, I'm not motivated to do it. I don't want to be there. I can't find what I want to do. And their receptionist was leaving. And I'd always worked in the office since I was in about year 10 anyway in the holidays. Again, five bucks an hour. Um, but that's what it was. So I started in about June 1997 as the receptionist on, you know, whatever it was in that, those days. I'm not even old enough to say those days, am I? Yeah, you um, are. About 19 grand, I reckon. 18 and a half. Yeah. 19 grand, that was cool. I was living at home um, and living at home with mum. And and so there didn't really need to be a transition. I was just, I, I knew what to do. I was, yeah. it was great. A little while after that, I took eight weeks off and did the work experience program at Camp Eden where you work, you do a week as a guest and then you work in each department. What's it was, Camp Eden? Oh, like a health retreat. Oh, right. In the Corumban hinterland. Oh. I think it's still there. It's like the Golden Door in Guingana, oh, what they are now. Okay. And, but they had this great, great, great program. And so that kind of got me out of circulation for a little bit, did a bit of work on myself while I was there. Um, there was a, you know, there was a spiritual undertone to Camp Eden. Um, 
and you know week in housekeeping week in kitchen week in grounds week in activity action that's where all the cute guys were um and then came back feeling a bit um oh I'm going to go back into working for the office um and I thought you know that was a bit that was a bit confronting initially mm. um and then I just sort of never looked then I sort of never looked back yeah and there were times where you know there's a huge amount of staff in the company then and there would be senior staff who'd my desk as a receptionist was downstairs um, at our office. It was like a corner building in Cathedral Street in Woolloomooloo, which was just a diabolical spot um, because there was a lot of just human carnage outside the door. Um, and there'd be senior staff who'd ring from the fax room upstairs and say, oh, lovey, there's, um, there's no staples in the stapler. I'd say, oh, my goodness, I just put a box there this morning. Is it gone? Oh, no, the box is here. <laughs> you know, it's an expectation that anything remotely, you know, it was that. Any kind of any menial. Any remotely menial administrative task. And I said, oh, don't move. I'll be right there. I ran up the stairs, you know, just pushed my smile back up, put the staples in the stapler in front of her. But that was my that was my job and that was what they expected of me. That, that you would that, check every that, stapler in the office. That's not my job. Uh, attitude doesn't exist anywhere anymore. But um, but it was a re- it was a real old guard. Yeah. Um, that that was sort of their their attitude and approach. I remember making my first tea for dad for a meeting and he said I'll have a chamomile when I knew what chamomile was I was like cool so obviously naturally I put milk in the chamomile and took it back in and he just looked at me and I would have I'd know 20 receptionists who've probably done that since and um anyway I didn't didn't put milk in the chamomile again after that that was both in about the first week or so so if it was a bit confronting at first when did you get us when did you get the kind of the scent of it in your nose that kind of pushed the ears back and made you want to kind of run with it? Well, I um, I think when I moved upstairs. Yeah. <laughs> when I finally moved upstairs and upstairs meant that, Michael, as I described before, we were client management assistants. So we essentially worked under an agent each and we were intentionally paired with the agent that we weren't that was a bit out of our comfort zone. So I was paired with the very creative agent and Michael was um, paired with the very detail-driven agent who did a lot, who had a legal background and things like that so that we could sort of flex the different, flex our different muscles. Um, And one of the first projects I worked on was searching for product placement for an incredible documentary series that one of our clients was doing called Journeys to the Ends of the Earth. Um, with a great photojournalist called David Adams. And my first win, and we were looking, I think we were looking for money um, to, you know, to sponsor the show as well. It was a big, um, it was produced by Beyond and it um, was, I think, shown around the world. It was, um, it was beautifully, beautifully made and he was a very talented, he remains a very talented um, photojournalist and filmmaker. And my first Win. I had a couple of wins. We got RM, We got them all kitted out in R.M. Williams. So they went when they went to their stand at MIP to sell the documentary, do the pre-sales on the documentary around the world. They were all kitted out in this amazing R.M. Williams gear, so they really looked the part. 
And David Adams was a, you know, was a king's boy, so he very much looked the part in. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Aaron Williams close. So that was kind of the first part, which I did with Matt um, Matt Cowley, who was running the family business of Aaron Williams at the time. And then the second thing was I... We knew that a watch was going to be a very big, that David's watch in the series was going to feature quite heavily because he was, you know, it was all about sort of periods in time and it's all about time we need to get here then and things like that. So the idea was, well, let's try and find a watch brand and people were willing to give um, a lot of Contra and my win Contra, which was is, that which is, product, which is free product it's free, free product. product to appear in it and Contra is lovely but I can't and Contra is great I can't Contra go to Woolies and pay no, <laughs> my groceries and, and Contra. Contra Contra is great in it, Contra is great in the event that it has an impact on the production budget. Mm. So, would the six thousand dollar watch I secured from Bulgari affect the production budget? No, but was it spectacular? Yes, it was. <laughs> Did it make it in the show? Yes, it was. So it was kind of this having that, having the thrill of that first actually getting something across the line is just brilliant and then you sort of learn bit by bit to actually where your the negotiation becomes a bit more complicated and you start negotiating money and Mm. things like that so not everyone's going to be negotiating you know talent deals for major radio networks or uh, executive producer attachment deals and things like that but people may be listening and they need to negotiate i don't know better homeland right yeah or you know whatever what did you learn? What were the big first lessons you learned about negotiation? Um, well, a lot of that I learned from observing my father, obviously. And he would, he had a few kind of key sayings that we've all, uh, I've always sort of carried forward, which is um, one of them being, which always makes my mother laugh, you know, when the, what is it? When the eagles saw the parrots begin to jabber. And it's that, you know, just sit. Don't open your mouth. Just silence is the greatest negotiation tool. And more often than not, you know, when we're trying to get information out of people, regardless for what kind of level of transaction it is, you just want them to really talk. You want them to open up. You want them to tell us what they're trying to achieve and ultimately getting a sense of how much budget or what what not they might have in that um, will emerge. Um, so I think that, you know, shut up and listen was one of the um, one of the great moments. I think that also, you know, not hesitating, just do it now. 
um, do it now has always been a very sort of big thing. Don't, you know, don't hesitate in your negotiation. Take it head on and get it done. Um, and don't procrastinate on things too. You know, if it's a complicated or you have to have a crappy conversation, just do it now. Crappy conversation, what's that? Oh, well, um, crappy conversation like define, you know, that, that can be defined as everything from you still haven't paid that invoice, we're going to cancel the contract, to uh -huh. um, your company's bringing our client into disrepute or our client has brought you into disrepute. How can we make, how can we make good? Yeah. You know, so there's always awkward conversations. Um, yeah, my uncle, my uncle used to say, sorry, I don't want to break your flow, but my uncle used to always say, um, you only ever have to be strong for about a breath. <laughs> That's pretty much how long it takes to drop the news. Yeah. Whatever that news is. Yeah. One breath. Yeah. And once you've said it, and you just move. It's time. And you can figure it out. Yeah. But, yeah, you're but right. I think it's that, on you know, it's the, all of the, you know, the golden principles of trying to be a good human and a good human in business. It's, you have to be upfront and honest. Yeah. You have to, you know, Harry used to say things like, you know, open it up, open the conversation up by talking about the smoked salmon, you know, talk about the, the weather and the niceties and whatnot. And then, you know, then bop them between the eyes or whatever he'd say. But, um, <laughs> But, you know, but again, he, he operated in a different, you know, in slightly different conditions. You know, like the early days, you think the early days of those big, like the crisis media deals and whatnot, you know, the, there was nobody else who had the ability to look after the person in the centre of that storm than he did and supported so what, by an amazing office. What you're talking you know. about is that in a pre-social media time yep. when... Uh, a person, an event had happened to a person, whether it be someone had passed away or there'd been an enormous accident or, yeah. or there'd been a crime and this singular person was suddenly a focus of national yeah. mace of media attention but they had no way of controlling their story. Yeah. In through the window on a rope made of bed sheets, here would come Harry with a dagger between his teeth. Yeah, and a management and agreement. And stand, yeah, and stand between them and the network. That's right, yeah. and and stand between them and the world, and um, because if you think about stories through the years, whether it be like Stuart Diver and his family, or James Scott and his family, you know the role that Harry and you know and the office. I, I worked for him. Um, uh, it was the year started. that I just started. Yeah, you would have just um, started. Just for folks who are listening, Stuart yeah. Diver uh, was a, a skier, uh, a ski instructor, a ski instructor yeah. that, that lived in uh, Threadbow. When uh, there was a landslide after a, a, some bad weather, and many many people passed away, and the, it was a tragic story. He held his wife's hand, yeah, um, for three the days. Soul, soul survivor. Yeah, he's a soul survivor, and the people dug him out, and uh, it was an extraordinary story. They had twenty four hour cameras on every network, yeah, on this body search, and it was yeah. the beginning of that. The, uh, the early cycle, days of that twenty four hour news never cycle. Ended. Yeah, yeah. I was working Midnight to Dawn Radio and I'll never forget, it had just happened and I was on air and Koshy was on holidays. He was still a finance bloke at that point in yeah. time. David Koshy is now the host of the Today Show in Australia. Sunrise. Uh, sunrise, sorry, oh, yeah. same time. Um, he, uh, he, they crossed to him and he, mm. he was taking care of it. He was, yeah. he was the guy, he was, on, he was there. Yeah. So they called him up and they said, walk over there. And yeah. he did. I remember we were driving home from the farm on the Hawkesbury and listening to it on the radio. Mm. Um, and 
uh, because I believe from memory it was he was actually rescued, found to be alive, and then it took them a long time to get him out on that Sunday. Because extraordinarily, it difficult. was just extraordinary yeah. in it. And but it's how the connection is made. You know, um, the Salvation Army were very present on the ground in Threadbows, you can imagine, and. It was one of the um, army captains who suggested that the family calls the Harry and Miller and co-management, as it was called, because Harry was on the media advisory board of the Salvos. They had a direct line and were aware of the level of, you know, support that he could, um, that he provided the Salvos generally. So he was obviously top of mind. Mm. But I remember being in the car maybe about a year later in the car with Dad and Stuart and, you know, by this time, you know, I think Stuart was, the, the book had come out, he'd done this huge, um, you know, and all of the media deals and everything had happened and his book had come out, which he wrote with Simon Boda, um, which is still incredibly powerful too. Um, and he was, uh, we were just sort of having a chat in the car and, I, by the, you know, I'm, nine, I'm 20 um, and he's a young guy, you know, he wasn't even 30. And he just said, oh, I just, you know, just talked about it. He just wanted to go skiing overseas and, you know, just have a bit of a, have some time away, time in his own thoughts. You know, it, you, the, you know, in crisis media, and it doesn't really happen, it doesn't happen like that these days, but at that time, you know, it, well, it was relentless and you end up, you know, you end up sort of doing you know, maybe one or two key key media interviews if you want, you know, if you want to. It just gives the choice back to the back to the client. It puts them instead back in of power, being, yeah. you know, door knocked by you know, yeah. door knocked by T V journalists and that sort of relentlessness. I of yeah, I can't think of that. So words. it's um yeah, I mean that and they were and I don't think that that um I don't think that it exists like it used no. to, but but he didn't have. There was nobody else doing that at the time, um, and there've been a few. There've certainly been a few agents since who've moved into those kinds of roles, yeah. which is, um, you know, which is understandable. But well, it really them, didn't it's have. A, it's a job that needs to be done. Well, that's right. But yeah. he he doesn't really he didn't really have any much competition on any front. Yeah. Um, for for a pretty long time there too, yeah. um, and and so that meant that he was, um, you know, and he'd been around for longer yeah. than any of these other buggers anyway. Who <laughs> did come around? So just, just to just to go talk to about negotiation for just a, another second. Um, you, you you said that uh, Harry would say talk about the salmon and then bottom between the eyes. Mm. Where for you is the line between getting the absolute best deal? that you possibly can mm. for yourself and for your client while still holding open the possibility that this is going to be a long-term relationship and those people don't feel like they're getting, you know, completely fisted. Because mm. um, I have, I'll tell you why, because I have yeah. had people negotiate on my behalf. Yes. And it affected the relationship, my working relationship with the people I was working for. Yeah, because they felt like they were getting a, Raw deal. Yeah, the people I was working for felt that we are paying you too much. Yeah. yeah. They should, no client should ever feel that they're paying a talent too much if it's actually delivering for them on the bottom line. Yeah. So, you know, we've had, we've had deals where um, 
maybe we've we've done an excellent negotiation and they made a TVC based on their expertise and the TVC never went to air. That's what is commonly called free money. Yeah. Right? So, you know, but we'd serviced that. Did they have a right to say, well, we didn't put it to air, can we have a bit of it back? But they wanted to keep their relationship open with the broadcaster and the talent and so everybody was in good stead. Um, but did they flush that down the toilet, change agencies and whatnot? Yes, they did, right? So we, can, we, we would acknowledge that. Um, but they didn't ask for the money back, so that's, you know, we move on. Um, I think that, um, you know, not all agents are created equal. And if there's a sniff of desperation that they're just trying, you know, that they, they're all big up front and they, they don't have a care about they have to administer that contract for the next 12 months, um, that, that they're going to be dealing with an unhappy client for 12 months. I mean, it just seems pretty, it seems a bit greedy and short-sighted. Mm. And we did, you know, we just, we just don't work, we don't work that way. And I, I suppose now as well is we have to, we're even more, and, and it's really hard when you're talking about high-profile talent that have a strong social media following where people just really want to buy into that digital back end now. And, you know, we, you know, you've got to be careful you don't come dangerously close to just taking the money if there's no alignment because those arrangements do go wrong. Um, and it's going to come down to the. I, I mean, it just comes down to the individual. Mm. I mean, we've had we've had a little we've had a little bust ups with our management clients where they say, "Who are you working for here, me or them?" And it's like we're working for you, but we are, we're protecting our reputation and working relationship with all of the above. And mm. also, you know, because this might be, you might be working with a big consumer agency, consumer PR agency, who've got another, you know, 50 yeah. clients on their books and we, our business relies on them coming to us all the time. So if our client is being poorly behaved or not delivering, we're not going to hesitate to tell them that. <laughs> but, and we've, you know, and and I think it's, I think that area is getting a is getting a bit tougher. Yeah. I think clients are more demanding. They clients, you know, like corporate clients, brand clients, they're more demanding because, um, and as they should be, because their dollars might be a bit tighter, yes. and the dollar has to go further. It has to deliver ROI, mm. um, and you know, not all influencer campaigns, for example, move the needle in terms of selling. You know, no, the idea bots is, no. at all, and and I, you know, that's the big, that's the big alarm bells for brands and, you know, media agencies and consumer agencies is don't just throw your money at a, you know, an influencer campaign. So they've got to that talent has to show you how they're going to sell your widgets. Yes. Um, and I suppose because we've we've as a company have done so many such a broad range of negotiations and deals over the time particularly around retail is that we have a real um we're really sensitive to actually selling the widgets because that is what delivers a long-term deal because it's funny when you actually sell the widgets put more puts more money in the marketing budget funnily enough and they want to spend that marketing budget on the on the key talent seller of the widgets yes it's not actually that complicated <laughs> um you are absolutely correct there so let me ask you about uh you and your relationship with big brother while i go close this door yeah 
Big Brother, so, of course, the uh, the Australian uh, version that was as big as it was anywhere else in the world and uh, debuted... Very in, big in Australia. But they de- de- Big Brother. Debuted in 2000. Debuted in 2000. And we couldn't stop watching it. We couldn't stop watching it. It was the biggest... Hit. It, it, it was a huge hit in 2000 and we had... We were... Um, I think we were all a bit taken surprised by it too and, and Big Brother produced the first there was no there was Australian Idol was the only other reality show on Australian television but it didn't come till maybe 2001 3 years later there you go so big brother here are reality tv contestants where they are a slice of the community and it really it was they're not actors it was zeitgeist it was this is someone i want to sit down and talk to sarah marie could literally be my best friend and they hit serious cult following so we would later, which I can talk about, we would later go on to represent every housemate that went into the house. But from the first series... How did you get that deal? We, well, the first series we ended up looking after Ben, the winner, and Sarah Marie because, in our view, um, the, I think the licensing company at the time was also charged with being the management company uh-huh. and, in our view, was that they, that wasn't their specialty. Um, so we ended up um, signing just the winner and Sarah Marie. Sarah Marie, who was obviously the biggest thing to ever come out of Big Brother, in in my view, in this country, um, in terms of, you know, recognition, brand, everything, um, you know, constant recall. So we would go on to represent her. They had this deal with the licensing company around the housemate management for two series, so by the time the third series came around, we had a partnership deal with um, what was, you know, Southern Star, now Endemol, now Shine, whatever it's called. Shine Demol. Um, Shine Yeah. Shine your Demol. Um, with Southern Star Endemol. And so we were essentially in partnership with the production company. Yeah. So when the kids went into, um, when they were chosen for the show, they were sent a participants agreement and they were sent a management agreement. It was really structured. And it had, um, and they would go into lockdown on the Gold Coast a week before the show went to air. And I would fly for six years. I would fly to the Gold Coast to meet them all, shake their hands in lockdown. You would have five to ten minutes with each, and they each had a friend and a chaperone. And so, you know, do I remember? Yeah, so shook a lot of hands. So let's think about there's probably 120 housemates that would have gone through our books at the time. Um, Some incredible long-lasting relationships and some who I'm pretty sure, um, you know, because of their own poor lot in life, (laughs) didn't think it was that fun um, and weren't as famous as they thought they'd be when they came out the other side. But it was an incredible, incredible experience for a lot of reasons. Firstly, uh, most of the, not even the key executives, most of the producers, editors, directors are whatnot in that show are now heads of production, heads of post, major directors, series producers and whatnot have all gone on to amazing roles in production and we can hit them up for jobs for talent all the time. It's the same thing you talked about earlier with Superstar. You know, yeah. Again, it's this massive production that then totally. spits out an entire new generation made of industry careers. leaders. Made careers. Yeah. Um, and in key development roles and our offices at Fox Studios now, we would see probably five to ten of them um, every week. 
um, which I just love. And again, we've all, you know, everybody's gone on to greater heights, which is fantastic. Um, and made made some really amazing television over the years. Secondly, it was a killer training ground for agents because each series produced about um, 20 contestants. So they're each mini celebrities. They, they're demanding. For a week. They have no, for a minimum of three months. Oh, okay. So we had this really ha- before we could release them. We would have this three-month window to really make hay while the um, – make hay while the sun shone. I sound like Lydia from The Housewives. Um, And so they were mini celebrities. They had media requests. They did a a national tour of nightclub appearances. So let's think about They did 20 appearances, 20 contracts, 20 invoices to itineraries, and that's what agents do. They negotiate and then they administer the logistics of things like that. So that attention to detail and planning and staying on top of it, it it was incredible. Really, really incredible. Um, and we would resource based on how, if we thought that they were going to be killer popular. So I think Big Brother 6, we made probably the most money as a management company in that time. And we made it all within about four months. And that means that some of the kids in there made some seriously good dough. These are, these are kids that were pumping gas or working in a shop or working at not working at all who were suddenly making 50 60 70 100 plus thousand dollars in a really short period of time we would push them to make sure they got accounting advice that they got legal advice we really put on a great structure around them um, and then and we had um, we had appearance promoters who um, who helped us coordinate and secure a lot of those nightclub appearances too so you know everybody and it was great for their businesses too you know everybody and they would chaperone them um and we just had so much fun and then obviously we ended up with you know significant clients out of it um and people that we've loved working with over the years you know i mean we looked after um we looked after chrissy for a long time after we looked after brie amer who's incredibly talented now a very good television producer um, and obviously um, Fitzy being the longest term of that. So we've worked with him for about 12 years now. Do you remember meeting him the first time? I do. And I tell you what, that the person who shook my hand that day is the person who'll shake it tomorrow. I mean, he is, he, he is that guy. He's always been that guy. Incredibly, he said, oh, how are you, love? And he said that to me oh, when I saw him on Friday. You know, I mean, like, he is still that same guy. And um, I think you could say that we know each other very well. And we've had an incredible ride. We've had an incredible ride with him. It's been, it's been amazing. And he, uh, the, the great timing for Fitzy was that um, Nova were just gaining momentum and a few months after Big Brother started, they were opening up Adelaide. And he was the king of the kids, stroke bogans in Adelaide. And they gave him a job on the breakfast show as a sports presenter. Um, and I think he wouldn't be upset with me saying he was he was pretty average, a bit squeaky, but he just re- he just worked his he just worked his tail off and he always has, and so yes, um, we've been instrumental with you know for him but with him incredibly yeah. collaborative. He's very smart. We've always um, really always making super informed decisions. He's got good people around him. Um, and it's been it's been quite a ride, and and he would have to be in this country the number one most successful 
you know, person to come out of contestant television. There's no... Oh, without a doubt. He's, yeah. He is... As a contestant, obviously. No, no, no. Yeah. But Because uh, I did want to talk to you about that, um, that he... You, you took him from this kind of weedy beanstalk bogan uh, footy playing kind of six foot nine or something. He's huge. And he's one of the kings of uh, Australian yeah. radio. But it's not um, – but he's also he's – still, he's still that guy. Yeah. He's just um, – he, and he's still injecting that into But that's the thing. He's never he lost. Does. He's always understood that – that's the thing that people want to pay him for. Well, he doesn't know and, how to be, uh, but he, uh, he doesn't know any other way. But he, but he <laughs> knows enough to yeah. build skills around that, yeah. so he can deliver that. Yeah, and, any and point. also, you it know, must be Big very Brother, satisfying for a manager to help build well, a career like that. But, but absolutely, absolutely. But Big Brother provided incredible opportunities after the show. You know, they hosted a weekly, a weekly show for a couple of years. There was another spin-off. So then suddenly he's got. Um, He's got chops doing live television. Mm. Um, and But also very quickly after Big Brother 2, um, he worked on a footy show um, made out of Melbourne called by um, Rove's company, Kevin White, called Before the Game. And he would do, he did Vox Pops and, <coughs> excuse me, the odd panel spot, things like that. And they all worked on that show, you know, for years and years and years. So he was he was lucky to get that. Um, lucky but also he's the right guy. People loved him. They loved watching him. Um, so he could still satisfy. He was doing national shows with Big Brother but he could still satisfy that footy audience and fan base by doing show shot out of Melbourne which wasn't getting the right, the proper airplay in Sydney, sadly, um, and then doing the radio show out of Adelaide. And he had some brilliant years on, on Brecky in Adelaide. Mm. Um, and... Um, and did well, but also because he had a national profile, he could do national reads out of Adelaide, which was great. National radio reads. National radio reads. So he's yeah. always national talent, yeah. regardless of where he was. And the move to leave Adelaide was, a, was, a, um, was very considered yeah. and had to, had to find the right person. Um, and it started with, it's, you know, it, and it's funny because you think about who the first ideas that were thrown up and... For the breakfast team in Sydney? No, because keep in mind they did... We, they, he and Whipper came together and they would drive. Oh, they did drive right. in Sydney and then they came into breakfast. That's right. Um, and um, I spent I spent a bit of time with them on Friday actually because they're hosting 20 to 1, doing the, doing the hostings for 20 to 1, Fantastic. which is great, which is actually their first TV series together. Which uh, network? Nine. Oh, good for them. So, you know, every production company or whatnot's wanted them to do a yeah. – and networks wanted them to do a show, but they're not always achievable when you do breakfast radio. Yeah. I mean, it's such a full-on job. It is. Um, it's such a full-on job. And, and, again, we've had, you know, 12 great years with Nova, we, you know, with him too. We've managed other Nova, you know, talent on and off in that period. But, um, yeah, we, we love working with that. Love working with that company too. Yeah. There, it, but his his career is just um, you know it's 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 been satisfying because we've been we were coming up at the same time. Yeah. it's so great to see where he is. Mm. I think the highlight, the highlight highlight for me um, professionally, given that he you know he has been my baby, 
He's only a year older than me, so he'd probably hate me for saying that. But I've gone on that journey with him. I've grown as he, we, you know, we've grown genuinely together. Um, is when he hosted the live finale of The Recruit mm. last year at Crown and I'm sitting with his parents who are awesome and his wife who is awesome and I think some other family friends came too and he took the stage hosting that finale and he was nervous and he just nailed it and I look at BJ and I've got tears streaming down my face they've got tears streaming down their face because you're like this is just it was his dream television the end of his dream television vehicle on Foxtel with everybody there and here all the coach you know I mean it was just the it's just the best show ever that recruits his perfect show bit hard to do with breakfast radio but seeing him deliver that live finale was just the greatest how did that show come together um it was produced by um maguire media with um to the as two eps as in eddie's company run by a guy called cos cardone with two eps who are both big brothers marion farrelly <laughs> They'd been they they'd been uh, they'd worked on Big Brother, so right. they injected sort of the entertainment, um, the entertainment factor. Yeah, and uh, Maguire was f- and their footy. Yeah, so it came together and it's a killer show and it, and it was like launched, launched with a huge audience on Fox yeah. Eight. He's on the cover of Foxtel Mag this month. Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. I'm stoked for him. Yeah, really stoked good. for him. You good. do a lot of uh, you do a lot of advocacy stuff in in the community, certainly around the empowerment of women, business women in the, in the community. What's the thing that you tell young women when they come to you? Because you you are you're a female CEO. You have yeah. a high profile company. You you know mm. you, your company makes a lot of money. You've got you know a lot of people that a lot of people know under your wing. Mm. When young women come and say. I want to do what you do. Um, you know, if they ultimately, if the young women want to come and do what we do, I'll, I'll give you the perfect example. I've just written, there's a young girl who's an agent in my company and I said to her about a month ago, you are, we are submitting you for the Achiever Under 30 and the um, 30 Under 30 for B&T and Mumbrella because I judged the Achiever Under 30 for Mumbrella last year and I'm like... Hayley should be here. Here's a 26-year-old girl who started as an intern for HMMG and said, I want to be in management. What does that mean? You know? And she's just applied herself, learnt, made mistakes, picked herself back up again. Um, and what what really struck me about her was that... Uh, and, and in the years gone by, she's never going anywhere. I'll never let her go. She's not allowed to get married or have children or anything like that. <laughs> Just lock her in a cupboard. Um, but it's that sense of it's that loyalty and I think that that's what's missing, you know. I too have been stuffed over by juniors who stay with you for six months, see a job ad for $3,000 more and leave you. You know, it's that lack of loyalty and commitment and wanting to better yourself that is what really gets my about young, young, doesn't matter you boys or girls in the industry, it's get good first and then negotiate your way up the chain. <laughs> get good, right? And, and they're not prepared to st- stick around. And I'm a member, I'm on the member of the PRC, which is a PR industry um, committee run by the comms council and I, I hear all the other sort of CEOs, they're all women, I think there's the old bloke in there, 
and they say, you know, their greatest issue is that the people that are coming up mid-range where they need to be good and hold responsibility is they just kind of stepped their way up. They're not necessarily, they haven't gotten good. And so I think if my, the key conversation I have is show a bit of loyalty because it holds, it has value um, and... You know, you can always, you know, if you're if you get good and you and you can deliver for a company, you will always get paid more. You will always be be able to negotiate negotiate your way up in that company. But you have to actually deliver first. And I think there's a bit of a, you know, maybe in a bit of a rush to be, you know, Instagramming from Santorini in July instead of actually just getting skills, building rapport, build your networks, gain people's respect, you know. I mean, and I had the great the great pleasure of writing my testimonial for Hayley before we came. But there are elements of our business where, like, she's managed Peter Morrissey's um, retail business in Big W. Um, it wouldn't have been as successful as it has been without her. And she's been doing that since she was 24. Um, and she she deals in detail on that that I I am could could not be across all of that detail, you know. So, but but what I love about her is that loyalty, and she she you know puts it on the table. I'm not going anywhere. I'm doing this. I want to grow this. I want to do this. I want to you know get into the content projects you're getting into, you know. And I I love that. You need at least one of them in your organisation. Yeah. You had that with the Big Brother experience, as you said, with every 12 months, 20 new mm. people coming out and just having to churn through all that process and getting better and better and better and better and better at it. Yeah. And those, you know, and the agents that worked on Big Brother, um, they might not have stayed with us forever, but they will, we all agree, kind of sets you up for life. Mm. Um, I had this, look, I had the same thing when I was, you know, when my close friends were doing that overseas trip that you spoke of, yeah. uh, which I didn't do because I was mm. working midnight to dawn radio shifts in yep. Brisbane six nights a week. Yeah. And so by the time I got to Channel V, uh, four and a half years later, mm. you know, I couldn't remember 10 days in a row that I hadn't been on air yep. <laughs> since I was 20. Yeah. All right. Um, and now, you know, now I'm in the radio and, you know, back in doing breakfast radio, you see how many, oh, here's our podcast, they slip their podcast in and they think they're going to be on, mm. you know, do summer, do summer drive when Amish and Andy are off. It's like, no, no, you're not. Mm. Although people come out of, I won't say the radio school, but people come out of a particular radio school waving their diploma in their hands yeah. and go, oh, yeah, oh, you can put me on breakfast now. Uh, yep. Up in uh, you know up in Darwin. So, no, actually, <laughs> actually, yeah. you know, and you're doing yourself a disservice, yeah. in my opinion. Absolutely, you're doing yourself a disservice by putting yourself out there at such a high profile when you're not polished, mm. because then the reputation you've got is you're a bit shit. Yeah, but also a lot of talent who approach us for management think that you've got a pot of gold to spend on resources to pitch them out endlessly. It just doesn't work that way. I mean, we make a commitment to development talent, but our development, I mean, we, we classed Lola Berry as a development talent, but, you know, she's published six books and we hope to have a TV vehicle up that we have produced, we are producing for her with an, our production company client, Core 3. We hope to have that up this year. Um, but she, you know, she's not quite so development client now, but, you know, a year ago she was a tier one development client. 
that we made a commitment to put resources into. But, you know, she'd probably... And she does have 100,000 Instagram followers and whatnot, but they're real. Yeah. You know, they loyally follow her and yeah. are interested in what she's got to say. And we've been able to grow her portfolio. But that's because she's a collaborator and she works and um, she takes feedback. We all, you know, work it together and then we, you know, make a plan. Um, but, you know, I've got – I watched someone's show reel today that's saying, oh, I'm in a really a great niche category. I'm a stringer based in L.A. And I thought <laughs> – Australian. Oh, my God, yeah. And I yeah. thought, oh. There's 125,000 oh, – Poor baby. – Australians yeah. there. But also, what's in it for me? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I remember, like, that – like yeah. we're, we're agents have to negotiate. Or oh, we've got you know we've got people like Danny Clayton who yeah. own that area in this country. Yeah. So what are you? What so do you if you've do? got, it, what have you got that I need? Yeah. But yeah. but they don't think about. I don't think they approach it. They're not approaching it commercially. They think that oh, I'm ready to work. I remember having the conversation with Lola. She said I'm going to move. She shifted agents. Um, she moved to Sydney. I said well we we won't. You know, we have to. You have to be in Sydney if we're going to represent you. And she said, "I'll work as hard as I'll work all day. I'll work as hard as you want." And I said, "That's great, but are you are you going to be patient?" And that's a, you know, patience is a virtue, particularly with your ta- with talent, because you know, what's the dreaded phone call? Your you know, your your talent. What's the dreaded phone call that an agent gets? Any news? Any updates? You know, if there's a, you know, we find out, you know, we're pretty communicative, but you want to be one step ahead of that talent and ultimately they've got to be patient to wait for the news because it doesn't come every day. There is a huge amount. Yes, there's opportunity and talent, but there is so much luck and timing in there too. Um, And, you know, I look at projects we've worked on, like the series of, we've worked on two series of fashion bloggers with Core 3 Entertainment. You know, it took Pip the better part of two years to get it up. You know, do you think, do you think you get a, when you're a content creator like that, do you think you get that returned at any point, that two years of development life and investing to then make people you know, high profile on a TV vehicle. Like, but yeah. that's the business. You acknowledge that up front yeah. and you love it anyway, right? So what do you tell, what do you tell people to do while they wait? Um, if they're, gotta, if they're junior burgers, well, but, but that's the thing. They're not always able to make, they're always able to make money. So it's what are you investing in yourself? Grab a camera from, uh, grab a film student from afters, go and make some content, go and do something. Go and create something. Don't send me the, you know, form, stock form, photo booth, showreel. Go and do something. Create some content. Build a build a channel. Build a blog. Build something that says that you've actually got a bit of get up and go. Um, and, but, you know, we can't, we just can't, we just don't have the resources to sort of sign that kind of talent now. No. You know, where to, you know, I, I've just had a, we have a management meeting every Monday morning and we had a conversation this morning. We've got two clients with books coming out this year, two quite different books. Tara Moss has a book called Speaking Out coming out in May. And I said, okay, so what do we do? What can we do around this book, which is a handbook for women and girls about speaking out? And what can we, what, our job is, what can we build around that? Can we build 
a you know a ticketed tour where Tara essentially is keynoting, but she's curating a list of kick-ass inspirational women as a really productive day for women and girls, whether it's school or in business or whatever. So what are we doing around that? How can we create that, that sells books and puts Tara mm-hmm. out there and that she's a collaborator on? You know, so that's the way we think. So I can get I know, exactly. coming. That's the way, but that's the way we have to think. Because that's the these sort of days. thing. I'm just, I just want to. I just wanna, hey, I'll trap her. And yeah. I'm just no. She'd love to go to that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. She's right. So it's you know that's the way we have to. Th- that's yeah. the way we have to think as management. These you know yeah. these, these days. Well, the markets. You know, it's a very exciting time to be in this market. Yeah. You know, some people would say it's you know. Yeah. Television, as we know it, it's going to be over soon and radio, as we know it, it's going to be over soon. That may be the case. However, if you haven't seen the writing on the wall by now and you're not prepping yourself and putting yourself yeah. in a position to yeah. be ready to become that individual content stream yeah. um, that does eventually align with, be it Netflix, Amazon or whoever else, Fox yeah. tells, HBO Go, whatever, um, yeah, you might have missed it. <laughs> yeah, but also, I mean, Osha, the thing is that we're just as, our talent and our company, we are just as susceptible to that mm. market movement. We've had stuff recently that's just dropped off a cliff and mm. you think, oh, that's going to make for an interesting next financial year. <laughs> what are we going to do to, where's our, where are our thinking caps around how we're going to, you know, replace that, manipulate that, you know, to, to get other activity going. You mm. know, we're, we're wide open to that. But the thing is, it's still a small family business and I can restructure in half an hour um, and scale up and scale down as required. Yeah. But it's still, you know, the business still works to basically, you know, as it always did for my, you know, with my father, it, it, it works to serve, um, to serve its clients, serve its staff and to, you know, give me a life and a lifestyle. <laughs> Um, sounds like you which really... I quite like, so I don't want that to ever drop. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like you really do love what you do, Laura. I do, I do, but I love the future of what I'm doing. You know, do I? Um, I and I'm not. I'm not going to bullshit you. Do I want to do straight talent management for the rest of my life? I do not. My father is more, much more passionate about talent management than I am. I love talent management paired with talent content collaboration are our kind of three buzzwords where, you know, and the perfect, because we look after media, literary, producer, client. So where I've got my production company client in core three, we take Lola Berry, we create a TV show, we sell it, we produce it with her, we negotiate all the back end for Lola. You know, so that is my future. That's what I love. That's what I love doing. And that's what I'll, that's what I'm going to, focus on so I would reinvest all time and money because long game to get that kind of activity going that relies on television it relies on IPTV it relies on social media it's they're all running in sync you can't have any I don't think you can have one in isolation so that's the kind of talent that we will look after and and it and it bodes well for expert talent because you can really package well around expert talent in that area exciting times ahead for you it is. I love it. And our other, the other production company client is Garage Entertainment who are acquired by Surf Stitch last year and they're an adventure sport. If you told me that I'd be representing a big wave surfer and mixed martial arts UFC fighter in Richie Vass and, 
you know, working on developing projects with Garage Entertainment a year ago or two years ago, five years ago, I would have said. So stitched the apparel company. Yeah, so they bought an incredible adventure sport content hmm. company who owns its own SVOD platform. That's the future, people. And I love collaborating. So I'm a daughter of a producer and a producer by nature, so that is what I'll be. I can't thank you enough for popping around here on a work day in the Thanks. middle of the afternoon. Yay. Um, Lauren, it's been so great. I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. I love your pad. That's great. I'm going to take your photo, okay? Okay. Real quick. Okay, it's 125th nice. of a second. All right. All right no cool. problem. And that was Lauren Miller-Salento. You can find her on Twitter, Lauren MC at Lauren MC is where she is. She's a remarkable businesswoman, great CEO, lovely human being. Fantastic negotiator. I do like her very much. And she's lovely. She's a lovely person. She's a sweetheart. And uh, yeah, I would want her on my side. I would not want to be negotiating against her, that's for sure. She gets great deals for, uh, for all her clients. Uh, hey, um, thank you so much for listening. Thank you very much for being a part of the show. Thanks to everybody again that supported the show through the Patreon page, patreon.com slash osher. If you need me through the week, you can find me, send osher email at gmail.com. And um, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat. Yeah, you know where to find me. You know where to find me. Hey, uh, have a great week. I'll uh, talk to you on the radio in Brisbane. If you're in Brisbane, you can find me on uh, Hit 105 every morning uh, between 6 and 9 a.m. And uh, if you do happen to be in the city of Sydney, uh, uh, April 23rd, come along to the Sydney Town Hall and... uh, see me tell some stories or tell our story i'm still wondering if i'm gonna tell a completely debaucherous drugs and alcohol one or not <laughs> depends really it depends on what happens hey uh my dog's growling or something what you got there frankie i'm gonna have to go sort this out hey your ace love you for listening thanks heaps until we talk next time sleep well and dream of beautiful things catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.